This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is Aaron Harris, and you are tuning into the Football Odyssey. My guest today is Ken Crippen, a football historian and an author who recently launched the Football Learning Academy a website that contains online courses and videos on football history and the impact that the game has had on society. Ken and I discuss his new venture and also discuss his background as a football writer and his own work on the All-America Football Conference and the original Buffalo Bills franchise that was a part of the AAFC. If you click on the link in the description, you'll see a link to the Football Learning Academy and links to our social platforms where you can follow us and share your thoughts on the show. With all that said, here is my conversation with Ken Crippen. All right, Ken, thanks for joining the show. How are you? I'm well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. You've been writing about pro football for 30 years? Probably over 30 years at this point, yes. Do you remember the first article you ever had published? It was probably an early Buffalo team. I'm guessing it was probably 1917 Buffalo teams. So uh, that's probably the first article that I wrote and had published. Was there an attachment to Buffalo that made you want to write that? Or was it kind of an assignment that was given to you? Uh, I'm originally from the Buffalo area. So Uh uh, Buffalo football definitely interests me. And I just kept digging deeper and deeper into the history and prior to NFL stuff, you know, prior to 1920. So just, uh, just kept researching and the more I researched, the more I enjoyed it. Are you a Josh Allen fan? Absolutely. Yeah. It's hard not to like him now. That was a crazy, yeah. I mean, obviously everybody, I think you, you know, you touch on this in some of your work about recency bias and a, a lot of people think that divisional game was the end all <laughs> be all of games. <laughs> I, th- I think maybe within the past, you know, 10 years, maybe that's fair to say, excluding Super Bowls. But yeah, I think that was definitely one for the ages. Although I think there's going to be more great games from him to come because I haven't seen all of his games, but I'm seeing a few because they're on TV a lot more now. And I'm really excited about like his future in the league. Yeah, I mean, he's absolutely uh, continuing to improve year after year. And uh, I would have to say that the playoffs this last year were just absolutely incredible. There were so many great games. So it was definitely fun to watch. And since you have a lot of the young quarterbacks now, I expect we're going to see a lot of that, like you said, going forward. Did this year feel at all maybe more competitive than some uh, of the recent years? Yeah, I would probably say so, because I don't think there was really any team that was truly dominant. Uh, You were pretty much going down toward the end of the season before things were locked up. Um, So I definitely... I think it was more competitive. And when you saw the playoffs too, I mean, sometimes there were blowouts in there. Uh, We weren't seeing that this year. So a lot of really close games, games going to overtime. So uh, I thought that was a a really good competitive year. Yeah. It seems like the, uh, the biggest blowouts were the ones with the uh, wild card where they had that extra team coming that no one that they had no right being there. Like I'm a Steeler fan and like that game was pretty much over before it began. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's one of those things where the more you add playoff teams, then, you know, the more you're going to see that type of stuff. So 
leave it uh, just the cream of the crop and you'll probably have more competitive games. Whenever you watch something like that, like that, those playoff series, do you immediately think of like historical context? Like, you know, this performance reminds me of this performance from that quarterback or this game has a similar flow to maybe some other games you had seen in the past. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I watch a lot of old game film, so um, you do see some memories of games. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, whenever you see a great game, it's something you're always going to remember. So I, I definitely love watching it. Was your fascination with football history something that came on later on in life, or was this something for you that had developed right when you started watching? No, it was something I was later on. Um, mm -hmm. As I had more time to start investigating things, you know, this was pretty much middle of college toward the end of college. Um, that's when I started really digging into it. And then once I graduated, uh, then I really started focusing on football history and researching it and writing about it uh, and stuff like that. So I would say it's a little later in life, but not real late in life. Well, were you investigating more of the players from the time of your era when you were really young? You may not remember, or did you always have an interest in turn of the century football and a little later? I would say it started with just investigating the Buffalo Bills being originally from Buffalo uh, and then going back in history and then starting to see some of the other teams, um, some of the other cities where they had teams, especially ones where uh, the teams no longer exist. You know, Rochester and Tonawanda. Tonawanda is a suburb of Buffalo and Rochester is not too far away from Buffalo. So then things just started expanding out from there, how the NFL formed and um, then just starting to dig deeper and deeper into the history prior to the NFL and how the game formed. And so it's one of those things where the more I did it, the more I wanted to dig back into history and, and truly see how the game was formed and how the game was played prior to the NFL. Were you relying more on uh, books you got from the library back then, or did you have bookstores that had a pretty good selection for that, for those kind of research projects? Um, there were some books out, uh, not as many. There were more encyclopedias at that point. Um, but I would say it's probably digging into old newspapers, mm. um, you know, just going into the library, going to the, the microfilm room and just, you know, digging through those old newspapers and, and reading game accounts and stuff like that of the older games. Yeah. That's kind of like a lost start because I use newspapers.com and mm. I can't even imagine having to go to a library and have to you know, go through the whole process, but I'm sure that's what made it very rewarding. Yeah, especially when you're digging through looking for a specific piece of information and you finally find it after hours of your <laughs> eyes getting crossed, staring at that microfilm machine. So, yeah, it's definitely uh, uh, an interesting thing and uh, requires a lot of passion to do it. But like you said, you know, there's a lot of online newspaper archive sites that uh, make things a lot easier. You don't have to travel to those libraries. You don't get kicked out when the libraries are closing. Um, so it's definitely helped out by having a lot of those newspapers digitized. What, what part of football history do you find the most fascinating? I mean, do you look at the institutional history as something that you take to a lot? Is it the X's and O's? I mean, do you kind of think of it in that vein or do you just really enjoy the entirety of the, the game's development? I really enjoy the entirety of it. Um, especially like the older history, uh, especially if you're looking at 1920s uh, prior to that. Also, 1940s is something I'm interested in. Um, but looking at the players as well, I've done 
historical pro football scattering reports, you know, analyzing some of these older players and putting together scattering reports on their professional careers. So, you know, that gets into the X's and O's, gets into, you know, what is, you know, the responsibility of each of the positions and, you know, being able to grade a lot of these older players that most people nowadays probably have never seen or sometimes never even heard of, but uh, to try to bring back that history and the, to talk about those older players and really let people know how good they were uh, to me is something that's important. Are you a big Paul Zimmerman fan? I am a Zimmerman fan. Didn't have a chance to talk to him uh, before. And uh, yeah, he's uh, obviously an incredible writer, uh, knows his stuff. And, uh, you know, unfortunately uh, he's passed away, but uh, he did leave us a lot of, uh, a lot of his writings. So that's a good thing that we still have that. Yeah, the uh, Thinking Man's Guide to Pro Football is a book that I revisit every couple of years, and it has a lot of those older draft uh, cards in the rating systems. Mm. So, yeah, that, that's always yep. interesting to look back at. Yeah, someone... Bob Carroll had a pretty good book, too, um, When the Grass Was Green, I think is what it was called. Mm. Um, that was another excellent book where they're really diving into um, older teams, older players, and talking about uh, the game itself. So. Uh, anything written by Bob Carroll is something that people should definitely read. Yeah, I'll check that out. There's also another one too, uh, Iron Man by uh, Stuart Lasseter. I don't remember the last name, but that, that's the name of the book, Iron Man, about a lot of the guys who played. I don't know if it goes back to the 1920s. I want to say it does, but definitely the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of like character profiles. Yeah, anytime you're talking about Iron Man, those guys that played both ways, back then even on special teams as well you know full 60 minutes you know they were they were tough there's no doubt about that yeah i wish we saw more of that i think the only person i remember in my lifetime that did it on a consistent basis was uh troy brown Mm -hmm. and julian edelman did it here and there but it wasn't anything drastic yeah and usually you're not seeing that as you know a full 60 minutes um you know they still switch out rotations with um, different uh, schemes and stuff like that, you know, to see somebody play a full 60 minutes. um, Yeah. I don't, I don't see that ever happening again. Yeah. Unless someone starts a new football league where that's the uh, that's mandatory, like an iron man. And I would say with the size of the players nowadays, um, they're not going to be able to go full speed uh, with their size for a full 60 minutes. So um, I would worry about whether they're going to end up getting hurt trying to do that if they pull back a little bit. Um, I mean, they're unbelievable athletes, but still, you know, going full speed for 60 minutes is, is not that easy. So um, especially when you spend your whole career specializing in things, you're not used to doing offense, defense, and special teams. Have you ever heard of uh, sprint football? I have not, no. It's a... Uh... It's it, originally when it was developed, it was called lightweight football. Like uh, some schools in the Northeast, they had uh, like an unofficial club sport where you can only play if you were 150 pounds or lighter. And over mm-hmm. time, you know, as you know, men have just naturally gotten bigger. They've upped the weight scale. Uh, I think now it's 178 pounds, but you know, you'll have defensive linemen who are just as big as the defensive backs. So it's like if you mm-hmm. have a running back that breaks breaks out, you know, you'll see the nose guard that's running 40 years downfield to tackle him. Um, and they called it sprint football because they wanted to kind of capture the essence of the game, how it's relying on quickness and speed. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah. And there's only a few 
schools now that play it. I mean, Army and Navy have a team. Cornell, I believe, has a team. Uh, University of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the a lot of, a lot of the historic schools have it, but or a few of them, I should say. But yeah, I think if you were to do a two way league, you would have to have some sort of weight limit if you really want to maximize the product in that sense. Yeah, I can't imagine three hundred pounders being able to do that. Yeah. So as someone who's interviewed players a lot throughout your life, is there a a position that you find players will give you the most in-depth or candid interviews? Uh, not necessarily positions. It's usually um, eras. Okay. A lot of the older guys um, definitely like talking about it. They don't get to talk about it as much anymore because people aren't really remembering what they did. Um, so it's the older players that really give you a lot of good stories. When I was working on my book on the Buffalo Bills of the All-America Football Conference, a lot of those players, you know, it was great talking to them because they gave me a lot of the inside of the huddle type things, uh, things that they were thinking, things that they were seeing, um, conversations that they were having in the huddle, um, as well as, you know, other things that were happening. So um, those are the guys that really opened up the most or the older guys. Did that interest in the uh, the Bills, did that was that a product of your interest in the AFC as a whole and then you grew to concentrate on that team or was it through the Bills that you became interested in the AAFC? It was through the Bills. So basically as I was digging through and went past, you know, the current franchise and discovered that they had a Buffalo Bills franchise in the 1940s, that piqued my interest. And then uh, from there, that laid the foundation for my interest in all of the all-America football conference. So started with Buffalo and then expanded out from there. What do you think made that conference as a, a sort of rival league to the NFL as a whole? And what do you think made them stand out against some of the other challengers that have come up since the league's inception? A lot of talent. Um, you know, people consider it, you know, an inferior league or a minor league or something like that. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. So I've talked to a lot of players that played in both leagues at that time. Every single one of them have said that the AAFC was just as strong as the NFL, if not stronger. Um, the only criticism or close to criticism I had from one player is that he said that the worst teams in the All-America Football Conference were worse than the worst teams in the NFL. Then he had the caveat saying that the strongest teams were stronger than the strongest teams in the NFL. Mm. obviously pointing to Cleveland Browns. And when you see it, um, there were, I think, you know, within the first year or so, 110 players from the NFL were on AAFC rosters and very few of them made all conference teams. So you had brought in a lot of NFL talent and they were not the stars. It was uh, the other talent that they had. And when you take a look at the Cleveland Browns, when they came into the NFL, um, they beat up on the Philadelphia Eagles uh, to win the championship that first year. They continued winning championships into the mid-50s. So um, they were definitely a, a very strong team. And if the NFL uh, thought that they were you know, inferior in talent and stuff like that, they had a dispersal draft at the end of the All-America Football Conference where they essentially, the NFL teams were able to draft all the players from the All-American Football Conference. Mm. It's inferior talent, then why are you so desperate to try to get all of the talent from the All-American Football Conference when it folded? So 
And then you look at the Hall of Famers that came out of the All-American Football Conference, and that pretty much tells you that they were not an inferior league, that they were definitely on par with them, if not better. Yeah, I think it was uh, the NFL commissioner at the time, Elmer Layden, had said something to the effect of uh, whenever they asked about the AFC launching, he's like, let me know when they get a ball or something to that effect. Yep. Yeah, he said that right before the 1946 season. And they they refused to talk with the All-America Football Conference as far as trying to um, share a draft or playing uh, an overall championship game similar to the Super Bowl like they did late with the AFL and NFL refused to do any of that because it, they were definitely scared. They knew that the All-America football conference could come in and embarrass them and they didn't want to see that happen. So they did everything they could to try to say that they're an inferior league, they're a minor league and everything like that. And it, uh, they kind of proved things out when Cleveland came in that they just kicked, uh, kicked people's butts. Did a lot of the players uh, come back from the war and join the AFC that had previous NFL experience? Yeah, there were several, uh, a lot of players actually that came back from the war and went to the All-American Football Conference. The NFL tried their best to prevent that from happening, saying that they're going to blackball any player that signs an All-American Football Conference contract and will never be able to play in the NFL again, all that kind of stuff. But um, the AFC, you know, they did have some money and they were able to pay uh, competing contracts and you know a lot of really good players jumped leagues over to the All-America Football Conference and that definitely helped them out. Was it a was it Bill Radovich that launched that launched a big lawsuit against the NFL over that or did that come later on? Um, there were several people that had lawsuits going on. Um, Angelo Bertelli is another one that was famous. Um, so yeah there were several going on at that time and they all kind of settled within the, the 1946 season that, you know, they realized that we're spending a lot of money on lawyers and we're not really getting anywhere with this. So uh, they kind of settled those lawsuits and people were able to sign with the teams that they wanted to play with. And where do the bills kind of rank in the uh, echelon of the AFC? They were one of the more competitive teams, right? I would say 47, 48 timeframe. That's correct. Even into 49. Uh, in 48, they were in the championship game. Uh, 49, they were playing in the playoffs. Um, but, you know, Cleveland was just a buzzsaw at that point. So um, they weren't able to get past them. But 46 was a, a pretty bad season. 47, they struggled a little bit. But, uh, yeah, by the time they got to 48, they were, they were pretty strong. In 49, they were relatively decent as well. Do they have pretty good support with uh, the citizens of Buffalo? Were they people go to Civic Stadium? Yep. Yeah, they absolutely had good support from the, uh, from the city itself. And even when um, it, Buffalo was trying to get a team in the NFL when the AAFC folded, um, there was a lot of civic support as far as people buying season tickets, people buying stock in order to show that there was definitely uh, a big following in Buffalo and that they would be able to support a team. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't enough for the NFL um, for various reasons, but uh yeah, there was definitely a lot of support within the Buffalo area for that team. What was the the biggest reason that the NFL didn't want to bring them in with the other three franchises? I've never been able to get a concrete answer on this, but Burt Bell had promised Buffalo that they would present a schedule with Buffalo on that schedule because they knew that the other owners wanted to see what the schedule would look like if Buffalo were to join the league. Mm-hmm. 
Burt Bell never presented that schedule when it came up for a vote. So as a result, it got to Dan Reeves, who is the owner of the Los Angeles Rams at the time. He said, well, I don't see a schedule, so I can't vote yes for it because I have no idea where my team's going to play. If it's, if it's going to be constantly you know, crossing the country, it's not going to be financially viable. So um, that schedule was never presented, and therefore they got a no vote. Since it had to be a unanimous vote, um, Buffalo was out. Um, and even talking with Upton Bell, the son of Burt Bell, he didn't have any explanation for it. And in all the research I've done, there was no explanation for why Burt Bell never presented that schedule that he supposedly had put together. Yeah, it's fascinating. You kind of wonder if you could find an answer how things would have been different. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're talking about Buffalo having a team. You know, if they still would have had a team, you never would have seen the Buffalo team of the American Football League in 1960. So, yeah, things definitely would have been different at that point if uh, Buffalo had a team in the NFL. Was the the AFL incarnation of the Bills like an homage to the AAFC team? There is a lot of similarities. They definitely pulled the name from the mm -hmm. All-America Football Conference. And even if you look at the uniforms at the very beginning, they said it was, you know, to model it after the Detroit Lions because owner Ralph Wilson was from Detroit but they also look shockingly similar to the uniforms that were used by the bills of the all America football conference. So could have been a little of this, a little bit of that, but the name itself definitely came from the all America football conference. Do you think the uniforms that were selected in the AFC were based off Detroit's uniforms? Uh, no, no, because no. Ralph Wilson wasn't involved at that point. Uh, there really was no Detroit connection. It was just once Ralph Wilson brought the team to Buffalo, that's when you had that Detroit connection. Did you ever, do you know the YouTube channel Comrade Dobler? Um, I don't know that particular channel. I mean, obviously I've heard of the player. It has a, um, like a, a lot of highlight reels of teams going back to the forties and maybe a little bit before, but they actually have a couple of uh, like half hour, 40 minute highlight reels of the uh, Buffalo Bills. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to see because you watch, you know, they they play out of the, the T formation. A lot of the teams are still using like the single wing at the time because it's still in vogue. But yeah, it looks like there was definitely some potential on that team. They definitely looked like they were competitive, especially compared to, I mean, I guess Cleveland always swept the floor with them, but I guess that was everybody in the league. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I'll definitely have to check that channel out. Uh, I do have a lot of game film from the All-America Football Conference, but they may have something there that I've never seen. Um, but yeah, I mean, right in the 40s there, that's when they had the conversions from single wing to T formation. So some teams were using the single wing, some were using the T formation. Um, but, you know, it's nice to see those those two kind of going up against each other and, and uh, you know, seeing who's successful. But uh, yeah, like you said, Cleveland was just an absolute buzzsaw during the all-America football conference. I mean, yeah, they had their undefeated season in 1948 that, you know, nobody really talks about. They just talk about the 72 Dolphins, but 48 Browns did it first. Um, but what was really impressive is they were on a 29 game streak where they did not lose a game. So it started in 1947. I think they lost one game in 1947, went all the way through the rest of the season, won the championship, went all the way through 1948, winning the championship, and then going through 
49 with only one loss uh, and winning the championship. I mean, you, you're never going to see that again. And, you know, you also take a look at it too, is they won four championships, but they only lost three games in those four years. So they've won more championships than they lost games. Yeah, um, not, not even New England's primes did they ever match that. I mean, I think they had like a, what was that, 21-game winning streak, but obviously you're incorporating a 16-game schedule as opposed to 12, was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, you look at it, the Patriots weren't able to do it. I mean, you look at the strong teams of uh, other generations. I mean, you had the Lombardi Packers of the 60s. You had the Steelers of the 70s. Um, you know, you had the 49ers, the great 49ers teams. Nobody was able to even come close to that. So um, I don't think it's ever going to be matched. Why do you think the that history or sort of the records of the AAFC or any sort of uh, mention of their records or dominance is kind of falling to the wayside? It doesn't seem like a lot of people – you see the NFL promote the AFL-NFL – rivalry allied whether you're doing in-game broadcasts or some documentaries but the AFC's history is kind of pushed under the rug I mean do you have any reason or any ideas as to why that is well the NFL has said that the AAFC never turned over the official score sheets to the NFL when they merged and so therefore they don't see the All-America Football Conference any of those statistics as being legitimate that was their excuse so that and also, you know, they probably want to continue the myth of them being an inferior league, so they didn't want to push things. Now, obviously, with more television out there, you're able to see all the AFL games. It's a lot more difficult to kind of sweep that under the rug because everybody's been watching it for, you know, a decade by the time they merged. So, um, yeah, it's I think it's just a, the combination of you know, wanting to promote the inferior league um, methodology or, you know, mindset. Um, and then they use these score sheets as their excuse for why they could kind of sweep it under the rug. In the uh, aftermath of the leagues or three of the teams being absorbed, like what kind of happened with like some of the key figures like uh, Arch Ward? Did he just go back to the Tribune or did he set off for other waters? As far as I know, he did go back to the Tribune, continued doing that. Um, he was continued to be involved in, in football in various ways. It's more of an advisor, a consultant, but um, no interest in forming another league or anything like that. Um, as far as some of the other people in there, obviously we know Paul Brown, you know, he continued on. Um, Jim Brule, uh, the owner of the Buffalo team, he kind of just disappeared. Um, he was a partial owner of the Browns. That was kind of his buyout deal um, that, you know, he got part ownership in that, but then he just kind of disappeared. Um, so I think he sold off his interests. But yeah, a lot of those people, they, uh, the players, some continued on in the NFL. Some went up to Canada to play in that league. Uh, as far as the administrators, um, a lot of them just went back to their uh, original businesses uh, they obviously had other businesses that they were running. So they just focused on those businesses at the time and really weren't involved in football at all. Did Buffalo between the closing of the AFC and the start of the AFL, were there any other attempts at having some sort of football, either professional or semi-pro or you know, just regional minor league teams? They did have some semi-professional teams and they continued into the late 50s. 
Um, but there was no major league football in there. Uh, so, I mean, there's that big gap. And I think that's why uh, it worked out so well for Ralph Wilson when he decided to bring the team to Buffalo, that they were starving for major league pro football. Uh, and so they really were able to support the team. Now, as far as the uh, football learning Academy, uh, first you want to tell the audience what it is. It's uh, it's an online school that I created to teach pro football history. So we've got classes, we have videos, we have a blog, and we try to focus on all aspects of pro football history, but we really want to take a deeper dive into things. Uh, also, there are some myths that are out there, and we want to kind of correct the record on a lot of things. So that's why I formed it. That's why I put it together. And we've officially soft launched a few weeks ago, and our hard launch is in June. So uh, you can access the classes now, take the classes, uh, check out the blog uh, and you know, see the content that we have. And we're going to continually add more and more content as time goes on. What myths are you trying to clear up? Well, I mean, there's some things on, say, no pass games. Um, the Cleveland Browns, when they came into the league, uh, they beat up on the Eagles pretty good in their first game. And then the second game, there were no passes, uh, at least according to the box score. But there actually were was a pass that was attempted, um, but it was negated by penalties. So it's to dive into those types of things. There's a class that I'm working on right now on the first black quarterbacks, and the history isn't 100% correct on who the milestone achievers were, who were the real trailblazers. Some names have come out, but they really haven't told the full story. And so I'm diving deep into, you know, who was a quarterback, uh, when they were a quarterback, when they started, things like that, so that we can have an accurate record uh, of these men that were trailblazers. Does something like that get complicated when you look back at the way football was played back in the early 20s with a single wing where the quarterback wasn't necessarily the one that took the snap? If anything, he was more of a blocking back. Yeah, that definitely makes it more difficult. Um, you to look at someone like Fritz Pollard. Mm -hmm. um, he was a tailback, and the tailbacks are the ones who were mainly throwing the football at that time. So, um, yeah, it comes down to when you're asking that question, who was the first black quarterback, what are you really trying to say or what are you really trying to find out? Are you looking at the first black pro player to throw a pass? Are you looking at somebody who came in and played the quarterback position and was throwing the ball. So that's the type of stuff that we try to investigate in that class and try to clear it up to make sure that people know, you know exactly how football was played, the different positions and who was doing what. Have you ever thought about in the past trying to teach a class in pro football at a university? Uh, that's definitely one of the goals that I have with the, um, the FLA is to be able to put together classes as if it were uh, a college curriculum. I'm working on a flagship class right now for that. Uh, so I definitely want to be able to teach this in a college or a university. Uh, and so this is kind of that proof of concept that there's uh, definitely interest in there and that people are going to be interested in that. <laughs> when it comes to, obviously there's so many different ways you can approach something like this, right? I mean, you have obviously, a hundred years worth of material to cover. And you can look at it from a multitude of different angles from like player biographies to 
X's and O's and the institutional part of the game's history. But I mean, do you have like a curation process for how you want to present this material or come up with ideas? Yeah, I basically want to start from the beginning back for before it's was anything that's even recognizable as American football. It started off as a combination of soccer or rugby. So it's going to start off by, okay, how did those two sports come together and how did they change the rules to come up with the game that we know of today as American football? And then kind of followed from there. So, I mean, you're talking about 100 years. That's just for the NFL in 1920. This goes all the way back into the 1800s, 1860s, 1870s. So we want to see how that game formed and then take it from there of, okay, now let's start getting into the first professionals and then the professional teams and then getting into the beginning, the first leagues that were out there and then just kind of expanding it from there. So, uh, yeah, like you said, there's uh, lots and lots of years to, uh, to talk about. And I basically want to kind of go through in chronological order uh, of how the game evolved, how things changed, uh, the players, the milestone accomplishments, things like that. So that's how I'm putting together the class. Is there one topic in particular that you're really looking forward to getting to? I would say the 1920s, mm-hmm. uh, really focusing on that because, you know, the people are saying that this is how the NFL formed. And I want to go into more detail on that, make sure people truly understand everything that happened and all the struggles that they went through through the 20s and 30s and 40s to get to the game that we have now, which is, you know, something so big, there's no way it can fail. Uh, There was lots of times when the league could have failed and, you know, being able to investigate some of that and making sure people understand what happened, I think will definitely put things into historical context. Now, when you look at sort of uh, ways to promote it, I mean, do do you want to do partnerships with schools and universities to be able to get this in front of maybe get in front of more eyeballs or more people who are in that environment who may have an interest in this sort of historical angle of a sport. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Definitely would like to partner up with uh, colleges and universities to have this as an elective um, as because there's multiple majors where this would fit into. You you can be a history major, you can be a communications major, you can be sports management, anything like that. Anybody who's got any interest uh, in football history Uh, would enjoy taking this course. And in the market research that I've done, there's definitely a lot of interest from people that, you know, they say that, hey, if this was available when I was in college, I definitely would have signed up for it. So we know that the interest is there. It's just proving that there's a good curriculum that people would want to follow. And that's what we're doing at the FLA is showing what a curriculum would look like uh, and hopes that we would be able to partner up with some college or university down the road. Was this an idea that you've had brewing for a while that you can only do once the technology allowed it? Or was there some sort of spark that allowed you to to think of something like this? It's something I've thought about for a while. Uh, But like you said, the technology really wasn't there at that point. Or if it was, it was really expensive. But now it's become more affordable to be able to do this and um, be able to put out classes at a decent price point so that people are going to be able to you know, access this, that it's accessible for everybody. So, <coughs> excuse me. So yeah, it's something that, you know, I've, I've wanted to do for a while, but uh, it was, you know, a year ago when I finally was able to put it into motion and, and make it happen. And 
like I said, we just had our soft launch and uh, we're, we're raring to go. And you said uh, some of the proceeds are going to go to athletes who are suffering with some sort of ailments from their playing careers. Yeah. I mean, players have been very good to me over the years, as far as granting me interviews and um, getting me in touch with former teammates and giving me background for other interviews and things like that. And as I'm going through it, especially since most of my interviews are a lot of the older players, you know, you, you hear all the stories of, you know, all the, the medical issues that they're having and uh, everything that's going on with them and struggling to pay their medical bills. And so I want to be able to give back for all the generosity that they gave to me. And so uh, a portion of all the money earned at the FLA is going to directly to help retired players in need, the ones who you know, are struggling to pay those medical bills and need those health and wellness programs to, to be able to get through the day. Wonderful. Well, to close this off, I, I want to ask you are now the former president of the uh, Pro Football Researchers Association, correct? Correct. Yes. I was basically in a leadership position of that organization for 16 years, starting off as assistant executive director, then executive director, and then finally as president. So what would you say is your fondest memory as president and what you're most proud of being in that position? I would say growing the organization, um, not only from a membership standpoint, but from a visibility standpoint. You're seeing the PFRA mentioned in articles and on websites a lot more often now than we did in the past. A lot of that was because of the Hall of Very Good that the PFRA does every year. Um, so teams themselves are actually writing articles about it when one of their uh, players gets inducted into the Hall of Very Good. Uh, we're getting Hall of Fame selectors that are writing about it. Um, so I'd say that increased visibility and increased support for the organization is something that I'm pretty proud of. So you're like the Pete Roselle of the Pro Football Researchers Association. I don't know if I go that far, but uh, you got <laughs> the name out there. is uh, definitely something that uh, that makes me happy seeing uh, all the work that's gone into it from all the people. You know, the organization was formed in 1979. And so there was a lot of work from a lot of people in order to do that. And you know, I just happened to be the, the last person that was there. And now George Bozica is the president of the organization. It's in great hands. And I know it's going to continue to skyrocket uh, under his leadership. Sound words. Do you want to tell people where they can get the information about the site and where they can follow you? Yeah, I would say uh, for the website itself, the Football Learning Academy, it's www.football-learning-academy.com. Uh, we're also on all the major social media platforms, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn. So uh, you could definitely find us on all those platforms and, uh, I hope uh, you'll sign up for classes. There's free classes as well as paid classes. So uh, everything should, should be accessible to people. All right. Awesome, Ken. Thanks for coming on. Hopefully uh, the website will get a lot of attraction. I'll put a link in the description for anyone who's interested. Uh, but thanks for coming on again. This was fun. And I wish you a lot of success with the website. Thanks for having me, Aaron. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thank you.